If it bleeds, it leads. That is the motto of the American media. And we certainly live up to it with a 24-hour news cycle that makes sure to saturate viewers in whatever violence and vitriol is currently heating up the airwaves. Are you a true crime junkie? Do you solemnly clip the newspaper articles that relate to the latest national criminal investigation or stay up late reading and theorizing about the many ways a murder could have been committed? You don't have to tune in to an episode of CSI to know that America is riveted by a murder case, especially if that case involves an innocent victim. But what rivets us aren't just the gory details. We are also hopelessly drawn to the elusive cases, the stories that never quite add up. What are the investigators missing, we wonder? What illuminating detail will break the whole thing wide open and let the light in? We hunger for that moment when it all falls into place and justice can at last be served. But what if that moment never comes? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who knows a thing or two about being young and in the public eye, but fortunately, my childhood stardom was mostly marked by vocal exercises and performing Broadway classics, rather than being paraded around like a living doll in a full face of Avon, only to die a savage, untimely death at an incredibly young age. I thank my lucky stars and my parents. This week, we will continue to try to untangle the great knotted mess that is the Jean Benet murder case. If you haven't yet, go back and listen to last week's episode. This is part two. To recap the story so far, John and Patsy Ramsey found themselves dealing with the unimaginable when their six-year-old daughter, Jean Benet, was found dead in their basement on December 26, 1996. At first, it was assumed Jean Benet had been kidnapped, as a nearly three-page handwritten note left in the house indicated. The morning of December 26th became a circus in the Ramsey house, with friends and neighbors coming through and, astoundingly, being allowed to clean up before anything in the house had been processed or, hell, even properly searched. And at the center of the circus, John and Patsy Ramsey quickly became suspects in their daughter's murder. Soon, their nine-year-old son, Burke, would also find himself a growing topic of interest. When we left off last week, in an interview with police in January 1997, Burke was asked if he knew of any hiding spots for spare keys to the house. He didn't, he said, but once, when they were locked out, his dad had broken a basement window and crawled through it to unlock the door from the inside. The window, it seems, was indeed still broken and became a furious point of debate between talking heads on TV and around water coolers all across the country. Okay, so, at this point, Boulder police seemed certain that John and Patsy Ramsey were guilty of murder. But Boulder County District Attorney Alex Hunter wasn't convinced and called on recently retired Colorado Police Detective Lou Smith to try to uncover further evidence. Smith had investigated over 200 cases that ended in convictions. He had a good track record of catching the bad guy. 
However, it might also help to remember that John Ramsey had hired an incredibly powerful law firm that some believed had more influence over local politics than the politicians did. I'm not going to pretend to know how that works, but I do know that often our legal system answers more to the almighty dollar than to, you know, the law. Whatever the reasoning may have been behind the DA's determination to take the heat off John and Patsy Ramsey, Lou Smith got to work. Smith actually came onto the case convinced of John and Patsy's guilt, but soon found that the more he dug in, the more he doubted their guilt. Smith found evidence indicating that an intruder had entered the home through the broken basement window and killed John Bonet. Could an intruder have fit through the window? Some people in Camp John and Patsy did it, didn't believe so. Smith shut them up by climbing through it himself. Others pointed to a picture that shows an undisturbed cobweb in front of the window. How, they asked, would anyone have climbed through the window without disturbing that cobweb? Now, strangers, I'm no arachnologist, but I'm pretty sure spinning webs is like a favorite pastime for spiders. They do it often and pretty quickly. Smith pointed out that no one knows what time the photo of the window and the spider web was taken. Indeed, considering there wasn't even a proper search done of the premises until early afternoon, assuming someone took a picture then, there were at least seven hours in which a spider could have built a web in front of that window. And then, crucially for Smith, there was a partial boot print as well as a partial palm print on a door in the basement neither of which matched the Ramseys. The coroner noted marks on JonBenet's face and back that were thought to have been made by a stun gun, but Smith argued the Ramseys didn't own a stun gun, to which I might add, that we know of. It's always remarkable to me when someone uses the I don't own anything like that defense. Like, well, I guess that settles it. Come on. The DNA on Jean Benet's underwear didn't match anyone in the family or apparently anyone in their immediate circle. There was also DNA found under Jean Benet's fingernails. That DNA also didn't match the Ramseys or anyone close to them. To be fair, I doubt police got DNA samples from every single person the Ramseys may have come into contact with. So while that DNA seemed to point away from the Ramseys, I suppose it's possible it belonged to someone they knew. But who that might be was anyone's guess. Despite the foreign, unidentified DNA, as far as most armchair detectives and talking heads were concerned, John and Patsy Ramsey were still the prime suspects in the murder of their child. It certainly didn't help their cause that they refused to do a formal interview with police. No matter which way you slice that cake, it doesn't look appetizing. You feel me? In spite of the Ramseys' unfortunate reticence to talk to police, Smith continued to believe they were not the murderers. But who was? That was not a question he could easily answer from the evidence. Smith was fighting an uphill battle, a battle, you will see later, stranger, that he would ultimately lose. It wasn't until April of 1997, four months after their daughter was found murdered in their own basement, that John and Patsy Ramsey finally agreed to a formal interview with police, but not without conditions. 
According to Vanity Fair, quote, the Ramsey's lawyer had initially demanded that Patsy and John be interviewed at the same time, that the interview not exceed 90 minutes, that all previous police statements made by the Ramseys and others be provided to them, end quote. The FBI took one look at this list of demands and was like, ah ha ha, ha 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 ha, no. Money can buy you a lot of things, but it turns out it can't buy you the right to make up the rules when it comes to your own interrogation. Finally, on April 30th, 1997, John and Patsy Ramsey sat down separately to talk to police. Needless to say, they both vehemently denied having anything to do with their daughter's murder or knowing anything at all that might point to someone who did. As the one-year anniversary of Jean Benet's death approached, there were still no arrests or charges. Commander Mark Beckner, the lead investigator, said in a press conference that they'd uncovered a lot of new information leading to more questions for John and Patsy. They were, he said, quote, under an umbrella of suspicion, end quote. After another long negotiation of terms, the Ramseys agreed to be interviewed by police again. Now, I want to take a quick side trip here to say that a lot of the reporting on this case is fuzzy or just plain wrong. And when it comes to fuzzy facts, there were none fuzzier than the one spouted by Dr. Phil in 2016. But we'll get to that in a bit. But it wasn't just the press and unlicensed TV personalities parading as mental health professionals putting out misleading or downright false information. It seems the police were also making misleading statements and probably letting slip things that were not meant to be consumed by everyday Joes like you and me. When Officer Tom Hanley suggested to Patsy that there was trace evidence linking her to her daughter's murder, Patsy said, that's totally impossible, go retest. And who knows if they had found trace evidence linking her to Jean Benet's murder. Police, it seems, can and will say whatever they want to get people to give them the answer they're looking for. But also, yeah, of course there was trace evidence. The murder took place in Patsy's home. I'm pretty sure Patsy's DNA was all over the place. I'm sure my kid is pretty much constantly coded in my DNA. However, Lou Smith, who interrogated John Ramsey, was only more convinced of both parents' innocence after the interview. In his personal notes on the case, he said, I'm not saying parents don't kill their kids. Parents do kill their children. But they are trying to say Patsy did it. Their actions before, during, and after her death are all consistent with innocent people. They didn't do it. Smith was so convinced of the Ramsey's innocence, in fact, that he found he could no longer participate in the investigation. In a letter to the Boulder DA, Smith wrote, even though I want to continue to participate in the official investigation and assist in finding the killer of Jambonet, I find that I cannot in good conscience be a part of the persecution of innocent people. It would be highly improper and unethical for me to stay when I so strongly believe this. After these interviews, Commander Mark Beckner told the press that they were going to interview Jean Benet's older brother, Burke, to which the press was like, uh, wait, is he a suspect? And Beckner replied that they were treating him as a witness. 
I mentioned in the first part of the story in episode one that I didn't really follow this case while it was happening. Apparently, I was too busy shaving my head and listening to the original cast recording of Dreamgirls to care. So I don't really know if this was the moment when everyone turned their eyes on Burke or if the 1997 versions of Nancy Grace were already screaming what about Burke when this statement was made. But it seems to me that didn't happen until much later, which frankly is incredible to me. Yes, he was only nine when his sister was murdered, and it would seem the likelihood that he had anything to do with it was remote, but he was in the house, and he is, for some reason, conspicuously absent from the early reports of the chaos of the morning of December 26th. When I was reading through the various accounts, I couldn't help but wonder, where the hell was Burke? Turns out the Ramsey's friend, Fleet White, actual name, took Burke to his house around 7 a.m., probably to spare him what was happening in the house. Apparently, Burke was in bed until then, but a lot of accounts of the morning leave Burke out altogether. I don't know if he was left out of initial police reports as well, but it seems for the longest time, the media, and therefore the public, just wasn't concerned about Burke or his whereabouts. That would change drastically. In September of 98, a grand jury was convened to hear the case. According to a CNN piece from 2016, the media saw fit to print photos of the jurors on the case, which is not illegal, but it's definitely unethical. The trial lasted 13 months, and while the jury did hear Smith's case that an intruder was the culprit, ultimately they sided with police who were still convinced that John and Patsy were guilty. John Webb, one of the grand jurors, later told 2020 that he didn't believe someone could have gotten through the broken basement window without disturbing the cobwebs. He said that would have been remarkable. But may I remind the jury, again, that A, no one knows how long that cobweb had been there by the time the photo was taken, and B, not only had Smith demonstrated how a grown man could fit through that window, but there were six other unlocked windows and an unlocked door in the house at the time of the murder. How the prosecution got everyone to focus on that one window is the thing that's actually remarkable. Also not initially reported on was the evidence of styrofoam packing peanuts that settled in front of the window in question, looked to have been swept aside, and the fact that there were packing peanuts in the room where Jean Benet's body was found, which could mean someone tracked them in through the window. Then again, it could also just mean they got swept around by the wind. After the 13-month grand jury trial, the DA did not bring charges against John and Patsy Ramsey for the murder of their daughter. But... Just because no charges were brought didn't mean they were exonerated. And that's where the case sat for a long time. No one was satisfied. The people who believed John and Patsy Ramsey had gotten away with murder certainly weren't satisfied. John and Patsy weren't satisfied, as far as they told the media, that there was still no justice for their daughter. I would imagine they were also pretty fucking bummed out that they hadn't actually been exonerated and were still living under that umbrella of suspicion. Though Lord knows, plenty of people who have been exonerated still live under that umbrella. People tend to only think justice was served when the verdict matches what they already believe to be true. 
In 2006, Patsy succumbed to a decades-long battle with cancer. She was only 49. And then, just two years later in 2008, Boulder's new DA, Mary Lacey, decided to retest the DNA evidence now that the tests were more advanced and able to pick up trace DNA, the stuff that we leave behind no matter what, the same stuff of mine I said my son would be coded in. This test showed DNA evidence of one, possibly even two, unknown men on Jean Benet's pajama pants, which I guess was a pretty big deal. But the initial testing done way back in 1997 also showed DNA from an unknown person. So why the new trace DNA was such a massive revelation, I don't know. Then again, I don't know much about much. But it turns out that Patsy was absolutely right when she said go test it again. She was just about 10 years ahead of her time and they didn't have that test yet. Based on the new test results, D.A. Lacey wrote a letter to John apologizing and exonerating both him and his late wife. But Lacey's successor, D.A. Stan Garnett, told CNN, I disagreed that an exoneration on the state of that evidence at that time was appropriate. Our role is to bring cases when we are convinced that there is admissible evidence sufficient to convict a particular defendant beyond a reasonable doubt. We are certainly not tasked with exonerating people since everybody is presumed innocent anyway. Just goes to show, laws and evidence are only as good as the people in power want them to be. At any rate, it turns out trace DNA might not be such a slam dunk in criminal cases after all. Basically, wherever anyone goes, so goes their DNA. If someone robbed my local Dunkin' Donuts, they'd be sure to find my DNA everywhere. And again, if something happened to my son, my DNA, not to mention his dad's and probably his two dogs, would be all over him. Listen, I don't know if you've seen pictures of my dogs, but I definitely consider them suspects in a murder. Vicious hellhounds they are. And then in 2012, Charlie Brennan, a local reporter, started hearing rumors that the grand jury back in 1999 had not found John and Patsy not guilty. When the DA at the time had announced that no charges would be filed, everyone assumed that was the finding of the grand jury. You know, because that's how trials are supposed to work. Brennan said he was able to convince several jury members to confirm that they had indeed voted to indict John and Patsy Ramsey. He petitioned a judge to see a full indictment. The judge released only four of the 14-page document, leaving the rest under seal. D.A. Stan Garnett later told CNN that the day before he was sworn into office in 2009, quote, he was told in a top-secret meeting about the unanimous decision in favor of charging John and Patsy Ramsey that had been made by the grand jury in 1999, end quote. He said there had never been another instance of a grand jury returning a verdict only to have it secretly overturned by the D.A., to which I might reply... How do you know? But geez, this case went back and forth more times than a windshield wiper in a shitstorm. Over the years, it seems more and more crucial details about the bungled crime scene have come out. For example, there was a baseball bat found inside the Ramsey home that did not belong to them and did not have their DNA on it. The cord found around Jean Benet's neck did not appear to belong to the Ramseys. There wasn't any other cord like it found in the house. Plus, there was that detail about the packing peanuts. 
And for me, the biggest mystery, besides whodunit, of course, is that apparently the blunt force trauma to Jean Benet's head was comparable to the damage from a three-story fall. Some theorized that Jean Benet had wet her bed and Patsy got so angry she pushed her, making her hit her head on a counter or something, causing a pretty massive head wound. And here's the thing about head wounds. They bleed like fire hoses. My kid bonked his head on a windowsill the other night and the amount of triage needed was comical. Where the hell was the blood? In all the reports, there's no mention of huge pools of blood anywhere. W.T. Actual F. By 2012, there were plenty of other suspects and people of interest in the case. There was Michael Helgoth, an electrician who lived near the Ramseys and who owned a pair of boots that matched the brand of the imprint in the cellar near Jean Benet's body. Helgoth allegedly had had some kind of property dispute involving the Ramseys. In 1997, after police announced they were zeroing in on a suspect, Helgoth killed himself. Of course, the two things could have been completely coincidental, having absolutely nothing to do with each other, but it certainly raises suspicions. There was Gary Oliva, a convicted sex offender who, according to an old high school buddy, had called, quote, not long after, and quote, Jean Benet was murdered, blubbering that he, quote, hurt a little girl. I hurt a little girl, end quote. This friend also told In Touch magazine that the knots used in the garrote around Jean Benet's neck were similar to the knots Oliva had used when he tried to choke his mother some years before. Of course, a knot is a knot is a knot, and most people who have been through the Boy Scouts or grew up camping or fishing know how to make knots. And if one were to make a garrote for any reason, one is likely to use a particular kind of knot. A knot, as they say, does not a murderer make. No one actually says that. Oliva was cleared through DNA evidence and then arrested sometime later for possessing exploitative images of children. So Oliva is definitely a piece of shit, but may not have been the particular piece of shit who murdered Jean Benet Ramsey. One of the most sensationalized suspects was a man named John Mark Carr, who inserted himself into the media circus in 2006 when he began emailing with a University of Boulder professor who was making a documentary about the case. At some point in the correspondence, Carr, who was living in Bangkok, hiding out from charges of possessing exploitative pictures of children, confessed to killing Jean Benet in a, quote, love game gone wrong. Carr alleged he referred to himself as Daxis during this so-called love game and told the professor he had said, quote, close your pretty eyes, sweetheart. Daxis loves you so much. Oh God, I love you, Jean Benet. And my lover's eyes are slowly closing, end quote. Carr was arrested in Bangkok and extradited to the U.S., where he was ultimately cleared as a suspect in the Jean Benet case and written off as an attention-seeking pedophile. Then there was the family's housekeeper, Linda Hoffman Pugh, whom Patsy told police was struggling for money and had recently asked them for a loan of several thousand dollars. 
Hoffman Pugh would have had a key to the Ramsey's house. Of course, with the six unlocked windows and one unlocked door, a key would hardly have been needed that night. Hoffman Pugh turned around and implicated Patsy, saying to the grand jury, quote, I think she had multiple personalities. She'd be in a good mood and then she'd be cranky. She got into arguments with Jean Benet about wearing a dress or about a friend coming over. I had never seen Patsy so upset, end quote. Aside from this statement being a little confusing, never seen Patsy so upset, about what, I would argue that any parent of young children can be in a good mood one minute and pretty damn cranky the next. All it takes is one too many, I want to eat candy and watch Power Rangers all day, and you're at Hulk levels of rage. At any rate, there's no actual evidence leading anyone to suspect Hoffman Pugh may have actually had anything to do with Jean Benet's death. Then there was Bill McReynolds, a friend of the family who would dress up as Santa at Christmas time and was rumored to have an unusually close relationship with Jean Benet. According to Rolling Stone magazine, quote, McReynolds was rumored to have paid a little too much attention to Jean Benet, going so far as to arrange a secret visit from Santa Claus on Christmas. Supposedly, he had chosen Jean Benet to be his special friend, going so far as to bring a vial of glitter gifted to him by the six-year-old with him into heart surgery. Even stranger, he asked his wife to mix the gold glitter in with his ashes were he to die, end quote. Is that strange? Yes, absolutely. But I might argue that most people who dress up as Santa already have a pretty deep affection for children barring Bad Santa, and maybe the one from A Christmas Story, of course. You kind of have to like children a lot to do that kind of job. Ultimately, there was no evidence tying McReynolds to Jean Benet's murder either. And then there's Burke, Burke Ramsey, Jean Benet's older brother. Oh, Burke, Burke, Burke. What can I say? In 2016, CBS aired a documentary that all but announced with 100% certainty that Burke had murdered his sister and his parents had helped cover it up. And ever since then, that tends to be the most popular theory. Burke was then forced to give some statements and appear on the Dr. Phil show, of all places. I mean, he wasn't forced to appear on Dr. Phil. I'm sure he was paid handsomely to appear on Dr. Phil, but he appeared on Dr. Phil to try to do damage control and clear his name, and the interview did not go... well? Burke smiled and kind of scoffed a bunch through the interview as Dr. Phil threw accusations at him that he seemed to be pulling straight out of his own ass, including, you own the kind of boots that match the boot print in the basement. To which, for some reason, Burke did not answer, no, I didn't, bro, even though he didn't. Then again, he was probably pretty nervous. His demeanor is definitely odd and not the normal demeanor of someone being accused of murdering their sister. And people pounced on that and said it was proof that he was guilty. The main basis for this theory, as far as I can tell, is that the coroner found undigested pineapple in Jean Benet's stomach, and people think Jean Benet ate some of Burke's pineapple, and he literally got so enraged that he hit her hard enough to cause the blunt force trauma to her head. 
And then, I guess, the nine-year-old boy allegedly dragged her to the basement and finished her off by constructing a garrote out of cord and his mother's broken paintbrush? Of course, he couldn't have written that three-page note. I mean, I suppose he could have if he was some kind of writing whiz. Have you seen a nine-year-old's handwriting? Also, have you ever heard of a nine-year-old writing three pages of anything? Unless it's their Christmas list, I assure you most nine-year-olds wouldn't write three pages if they were promised a trip to Disney to do so. The other theory is that Burke hit her, causing the blunt force trauma, and his parents did the rest in an attempt to cover up his crime. But here's the thing, and you can throw proverbial rotten vegetables at me if you want, but this is my opinion, and it's my name on the show, so I don't know what else you were expecting. Did Burke kill his little sister? No. Is Burke weird? Sure. Is he probably incredibly socially awkward? Wouldn't you be, if this had been your life? But unless Burke is a diagnosed sociopath, I don't think he's smiling in the interview because he thinks it's funny or doesn't care what happened to his sister and the resulting trauma it caused his family in the ensuing decades. Furthermore, if he could control his smiling, don't you think he would have done a better job of controlling it during that interview? Don't you think he would have met with a media coach who would have been like, whatever you do, don't smile? Don't you think he would at least have been pretending not to find the whole thing funny? I think he's smiling because that's how he responds to stress, or probably pretty much everything. I went to day camp with a kid like that. He smiled all the time, even when talking about something difficult, and I teased him about it because it made me uncomfortable. And does that still keep me up at night 35 years later? Yes. Yes, it does. And despite Burke reacting in a way that you might not think is acceptable, is this. One, it was not his DNA found on her pajamas or under her nails. I'm no forensics expert, but I'm fairly certain whoever's DNA is under Jean Benet's fingernails is the person who killed her. And as of now, the DNA is still unidentified. Two, Burke was nine years old. And from all the pictures I've seen, not a big nine-year-old. I have a nine-year-old son, and it is exceptionally difficult for me to imagine that he could inflict the kind of damage on anyone that would do lethal harm to them. Even as an accident, maybe I'm being naive. Three, a kid who's going to hit his sister in the head so hard he causes that kind of trauma is a kid with a history of behavioral issues, and no one has ever gone on record saying Burke had any behavioral issues. Four, if Burke had hit her so hard to cause the kind of damage consistent with a three-story fall, shouldn't there have been blood? Like, everywhere, including on Burke? Like I said earlier, head wounds are bloody. Sure, some neighbors were helping to clean up, but not with, like, bleach and scrub brushes, you know? Five, if Jean Benet was their show pony, why would the parents have helped Burke kill her and cover it up? They didn't even bother naming Burke after themselves. Why would they go to all this trouble now? Jean Benet was the literal prize child. If Burke had hit her in some anomalistic fit of rage or jealousy, wouldn't they have just taken her to the ER and explained that it was an accident? 
Like, sure, they might have been suspects in child abuse, but surely that's better than being suspects in murder? And if it meant that Burke would have to go to juvie or whatever, wouldn't they have chosen that over losing their daughter? Like, these people weren't monsters, I don't think. That said, I think it may be that Jean Benet was being sexually abused. That is, if the information about her autopsy is correct. The coroner only found evidence of vaginal injury and noted that it looked like the area had been wiped clean with a cloth. All the other speculation about sexual abuse was made by people examining the coroner's report, not the actual body. And I don't mean to sound indelicate, but claiming a six-year-old was sexually abused is more likely to get your name in the paper than not. And if you're a forensic pathologist looking to make a name for yourself... If sexual abuse was happening, it is possible Burke was also a victim, which in my mind moves him yet farther from the realm of suspect than he already was. Strangers, that brings us to this. When we look at everything we have relating to the Jean Benet case, we have a pile of complicated loose ends, like a signpost with arrows pointing in every direction and no clear road to take. It's tragic that all these years later, with all the developments of technology and given all the people taking this case on, that law enforcement is no closer to solving Jean Benet Ramsey's murder than they were in 1996. I like to believe that all crimes eventually can be solved. I like to think that the small clues that can point to the how, when, and by whom a crime is committed are deterrents to those who might be inclined to commit such crimes. But the Ramsey case is deeply disheartening because it reveals the profoundly flawed methodology of police work and of the legal system that shows me and you and everyone that it is indeed possible to get away with murder. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, in Season 1, I told you the story of the Lady of the Dunes, the unidentified woman found dead on a beach in Massachusetts in 1974. After almost 50 years, the Lady of the Dunes has finally been identified. I'll tell you the tragic story of Ruth Marie Terry. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network, this episode was produced by Natalie Grillo, Becca DiGregorio, and Angela Palladino, and written by me, Daisy Egan. With research by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Ryan Garcia. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like our show, feel free to leave a terrible review at Apple Podcasts slash The Joe Rogan Show.